riesci a sopportar ma ola sono tutti in guerra e non si sa che cosa mai succederà ma recording devices to talk to each other isn't that kind of meta we're using recording devices to talk to each other about films it's like that scene in passion where they watch the security camera footage today we're talking about a director we're very passionate about his films about femme fatales are not just femme fatales i can't figure out a way to weave the black dahlia into this but we're talking about brian de palma over the black dahlia is about femme fatales also you know well i was trying to do a thing about the names because it's like passion femme fatale black dahlia all those black dahlias out there what i'm saying is we're talking about brian de palma but not just any brian de palma films the 2000s for brian well not all the 2000s for brian de palma three of his probably most notable late period 2000s passion came out in 2012 it's across the same decade and there's more of a through line between femme fatale to passion versus femme fatale to redacted although i will say redacted is very good but we're not talking about the iraq war we're talking about women we're also not talking about mission to mars mission to mars is good but we're not talking about space we're talking about women we're making space for women true damn this podcast has a women problem so i'm glad we're addressing it we're addressing the misogyny allegations by talking about three brian de palma movies the one male director who's never been accused of being a misogynist all the others have not brian de palma every account you read of brian de palma he seems like just a weird guy he doesn't seem like a bad guy at all he knows what he likes and he wants it i was watching this interview with him this morning it was from tiff in 2012 and the guy was asking him people accuse you of being a misogynist and he's like just taking a sip of his orange juice and he's like well i like to film women brian de palma is sort of an interesting case study in a lot of ways i have a backstory with his films i was originally not particularly a fan of his. I remember seeing Dress to Kill and stuff like that and being like, I guess. I really like Brian De Palma. Just in the lead up to this episode, I've just been thinking, I watched this YouTube video the other day about Brian De Palma and there was this montage of split diopter shots and I was like, I just, I love this guy. I was not particularly into it. And then I saw Blowout and I was like, wait, this guy's a fucking genius. I put Blowout on, I don't remember why. I was just like, okay, this looks interesting enough. Because it's a good fucking movie yeah yeah i put it on and i was just like oh my god this is amazing i didn't know anyone could make a movie that smart i was just like there's so much going on here were you aware of the antonioni connection not particularly as a matter of fact because i can't imagine having a conversation with you and antonioni not getting brought up at some point yeah because it's obviously riff on blow up i think that's probably why i watched it because i really like blow up and i think i like blow out more now because it's just such a bizarre movie it really did flip my perspective on De Palma because I was like okay this guy's a mad genius really clearly the more I read about him all the interviews where he talks about how he doesn't want to do shot reverse shot ever and he just always wants to have every shot be interesting is so cool he's just such a cool film 
filmmaker. The entire genre of hip-hop would be nothing without the movie Scarface. That's how cool Brian De Palma is. Yeah, I think across his body of work, the sense you really get is that he's an expressionist at heart. He considers himself in the kind of vein of a Serge Eisenstein or like a Godard or Hitchcock, obviously. And I think that is part of what makes him really interesting is that he's this guy who's kind of worked in a lot of low genre filmmaking, but he's also this weird avant-garde guy when you come to think about it for a little bit. In that way, he's kind of like Paul Schrader, but for a slightly different crowd. I feel like the De Palma fans and the Schrader fans, there's a lot of overlap between them. But they're slightly different in terms of style. Like, every De Palma film has the vertigo stairs, and every Schrader film has the pickpocket ending, you know? It's a question of which sight and sound film are they riffing from? Yeah, it is really funny watching these movies, realizing how many of them have, like, extended references to vertigo. And obviously that it's a reoccurring thing in De Palma's earlier work. Stuff like Obsession, which he wrote with Paul Schrader, is like a really obvious vertigo ripoff. And then you have stuff like Sisters that's kind of riffing on it. Blowout is the plot structure of Vertigo down to a T. Body Double is half Vertigo. I feel like you could totally just recut Vertigo just using scenes from De Palma movies. That would be an interesting exercise. Something would be lost in translation though. Is that Hitchcock is like obviously horny in a lot of his movies, but De Palma takes it to another level. He's such a strange filmmaker. He feels really difficult to like categorize fully. He's drawing on all these very disparate influences. I guess. And I want to call him coked up, but I feel like he would just kind of hang around other people doing coke and take notes. He also seems like a very academic sort of guy. Like he got an undergraduate degree in physics and then he was just gave up on that because he saw Vertigo and he was like, I'm going to make movies. I watched this interview with him and the guy interviewing him was like, so Mr. De Palma, what's your academic background? And he was like, oh, I majored in physics and Russian, but then I decided, no, I like the movies too much. That's so true. I feel that. We have the sort of back catalog that I think to a lot of people is unimpeachable. I feel like for a lot of people who consider De Palma a canon filmmaker, bits and pieces of his run from the 70s to the 90s are like indisputable. Even if they aren't necessarily fans of every single one of his films. Carrie is sort of an unimpeachable classic. Scarface is sort of unimpeachable. Blowout is unimpeachable. There's enough movies in there that I think people really, really like. I remember I watched this video and this guy basically said that even if De Palma has made a few bad movies, he's made so many good movies that you gotta consider him one of the greats. I think the thing with De Palma in general, though, is his bad movies are still interesting, I would say. He never feels compromised. He feels like he's misfiring, but he never feels like he's not pursuing what he wants to do. It's just sometimes things go bad. People like De Palma, people broadly like... Some people have the sense that De Palma fell off. And these are the films that are sort of from that period. It's a very disputed period, I guess. Domino is also disputed, but we're not talking about Domino because we're talking about women. But the last 20 or so years of De Palma have been extremely critically mixed. I would say. Questionable, but with a cult following. There are people that will tell you, and I think Dante and I are among them, that Femme Fatale is like brilliant. Femme Fatale is a masterpiece. 
femme fatale is what if Mulholland Drive was good? We can get into that. I agree. Black Dahlia is a fascinating case study and we'll definitely talk about that a lot. And passion is just so strange. I want to say I like passion. I'm mostly fascinated by it. It's one of those films I'm flummoxed that I never hear people talk about ever because in my head it feels just so much. I feel like with passion in particular, I think it's a movie that I'm shocked people aren't more annoying about. There's so many bits in it that I feel like you could see decontextualized quote retweets of images from it. Like, do you think I don't see what's going on in that dyke brain of yours? Do you think Tar is the bitter tears of Petra Von Kant for the smartphone generation? This is the bitter tears of Petra Von Kant. It's just so insane that someone would make a movie like that. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. We gotta get to it. We gotta talk about the main attraction for the evening, probably first. We always do things chronologically, and I feel like there's a justifiable reason for that. It's just how time works. These films are, if nothing but, not chronological. We should also probably say, I actually think you should watch Femme Fatale without knowing anything about it. This one's for, like, the real De Palma heads only. I'm normally not a spoilers person by any stretch of the imagination. I don't really care. Very rarely will a spoiler ruin a movie for me. I can know what's going to happen. I'll be like, okay, but do they do it interestingly? Does it work? Da, 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 you know, all that fun stuff. I mean, we already talked about Old Boy, so I feel like we're allowed to do one spoiler alert every couple of episodes as a treat. Yeah. I think with Femme Fatale, though, it's, like, extremely extremely nutty in a way that if you're organically reacting to it, you'll have a good time. So Femme Fatale is certainly a film. It's about a diamond heist that occurs at the Cannes Film Festival in 2001. Which it's very funny that De Palma did that. So we follow this woman named Lori and a bunch of other guys who go out on this heist. They're trying to steal diamonds from some famous actress and the diamonds are like on her body. Very subtle, you know, it's the snake. There's no symbolism there obviously so predictably the heist reaches it's the logical thing to do obviously is Lori has to go have sex with her or seduce her and then they can steal the diamonds the through line i think through all these movies is de palma is finally admitting that he thinks lesbians are hot i think he always thought that he's finally got a chance to really explore that i suggested this episode be called the brian de palma lesbianism trilogy but that was shot down that's basically the through line between all these movies though because i don't think he's ever been as explicitly lesbian as he is in these three films when all three of them to an extent flirt with lesbian culture in some capacity black dahlia has a fucking katie lang cameo there's a katie lang cameo in black dahlia which i did not expect that in black dahlia 100 but the opening of femme fatale is very metal gear solid too to me actually yeah i knew i was gonna like the movie the moment power turns out and she puts on the sea in the dark shit I was like, oh, fuck, hell yeah, I'm so into this. Femme Fatale is so early 2000s. I mean, being about time loops is so early 2000s in general. It's also the time that gave us such hits as Run, Lola, Run, which is also pretty interesting. The late 90s and the early 2000s were this period of dumb, smart action movies about time. After the jewel heist in Femme Fatale, Laurie escapes to France. No, they were in France in the beginning. It's in Cannes. She escapes away in somewhere else in France. She escapes from Cannes to elsewhere. And you have the sort of climactic bit where she falls down all those stairs. But you know, it's some vertigo for you. If you didn't know already, we're doing vertigo today in this lot. And 
she ends up at this house where this woman who looks exactly like her committed suicide very recently. And so what she does is she sort of takes on the identity of this woman. And it's all very sort of, does Surreal describe it well? I mean, this whole movie is structured around a series of coincidences. And the whole time, something seems a bit off. And then she goes on the plane to America and due to a series of other occurrences ends up in the first class section next to this extremely rich guy who's renounced his wealth to try to become an ambassador, basically. Kind of strange when you think about it. But the two of them kind of hit it off and then they get married in America and then the man, Ambassador Bruce Hewitt Watts, becomes the ambassador to France. So he has to go back. But she doesn't want to go back because all the guys she screwed over in the Diamond Heist still know who she is and she's trying to escape getting back to them. Right before she leaves Paris she has this exchange with a woman who's just wearing camouflage and she gives the woman something and we're not really clear on who that woman is or what the relationship is to anything else happening. So then the two guys, one of whom went to prison because of her, they get out and he wants revenge. And that one exchange outside of the church was photographed by the Antonio Banderas character. I fucking love Antonio. Banderas in Femme Fatale. He's so cool and so hot and it's always a delight to see him. What he does, he takes all these photos, he's doing this art piece where he's taking all these little parts of this square in Paris. He's trying to like turn them into this giant photo collage and that causes him to inadvertently take the picture of our protagonist and the deal she's doing. That's sort of sets the film into motion but that's the setup more than the actual plot of the movie yeah the plot of the movie is just kind of stuff happening it's basically the vertigo setup the banderas character is assigned to take a picture of her through trailing her he develops an obsession with her he keeps having the sensation that he's seen this woman before he's trying to help her but also does he just want to control her that's the dynamic there and i think that's you get the split women where it's like she's laurie and lily there's two there's two people you know and then you get the camo woman she gets killed mysteriously by the guys who want revenge so yeah and that kind of sets up the dynamic of the film so you're going okay this is going to be the vertigo thing This is Vertigo. Brian De Palma going through uncharted territory and remaking Vertigo. Yeah, but then it kind of goes entirely the other way because then Laurie fakes being kidnapped by the Antonio Banderas character. In order to get at the ambassador... Yeah, in order to get get all the ambassador's money and then she can leave him, basically. That's That's the bit. Except... Not really. None of that is happening. The only thing that was real is that she takes a bath in this random lady's house. And then we flash back to 2001. She doesn't stop 9-11 despite clearly knowing about it. Let her enjoy her fucking bath. She had the time. She could have told someone. I always assumed it was more of a dream than an actual time loop, but... Yeah, I guess that's fair. It's kind of like a dream. It's kind of a time loop. It's sort of ambiguous. All these movies play with dreams. They never feel like they do the cheap thing of just being like, oh, actually, none of that mattered. It was all a dream. Because it does actually matter. Through her dream, Lori is able to save Lily 
Lee's life. I should say that I also didn't know East West was a real movie. I thought it was a joke. I thought it was like the bit in Mr. Bean's Vacation. Yeah, in Mr. Bean's Vacation where Mr. Bean finds a doppelganger of him about to commit suicide that he saves. Willem Dafoe is in the Mr. Bean Vacation movie. He plays this egotistical director in it. Willem Dafoe is in fucking everything. It's Mr. Bean's Holiday. Apologies to all the bean heads out there. He plays this egotistical filmmaker named Carson Clay. It's a bad movie. Don't watch it. We're not going to do a Mr. Bean episode. We'll do a lot of shit on this show. I will promise we will never talk about Mr. Bean. Yeah, I think Norman Mailer's the lowest we're going to stoop. I think we're going to stoop much lower than Norman Mailer. Okay, apologies. She fakes the kidnapping. She wakes up and then through her knowledge of what's going to happen she stops lily from committing suicide the other major twist of the film is that veronica the woman who she seduced in the beginning is the woman in camo that you saw get killed earlier in the film and then through a series of convoluted things like she gives a truck driver that she knows is going to be there this little locket thing not really a locket it's like a necklace why did i forget what it was and yet like shines through resulting in him swerving out of the way so the timing will be just right so that he'll kill the two people after her and not Veronica. Whew! And that doesn't even get out the entire best scene of the movie, which is the striptease bit. I love the part in Femme Fatale right after Laura wakes up and she takes the gun from Lily and says, I'm your fairy fucking godmother and I just saw your future. That is just so... It cannot be said enough how good Rebecca Romjan is in this. And I have the instinct that people didn't like her performance because people are losers. I gotta look this up, but I feel like it was nominated for not the Razzies, but like... It was the Stinker's Bad Movie Awards nominee. The Stinker's Bad Movie Award. Like, the Razzies aren't fucking trashy enough. It's really funny to be, like, not even good enough. Imagine being, like, the Razzies, but worse. To make a point, you know who is a, a diehard defender, was a diehard defender of Femme Fatale? Who? Roger Ebert. Yeah, good for him. She was nominated for Worst Actress in the Stinker's Bad Movie Awards, but she lost to Madonna in Guy Ritchie's Swept Away. Oh, God. That movie. Okay, I really like the original Swept Away by Lena Vertmuller. Obviously, that's a really good movie. I really like Lena Vertmuller. No one's disputing you on this, don't they? It's kind of fucking insane that they would just remake these foreign art house movies with reality TV ass celebrities. I mean, uh, City of Angels. City of Angels. I'm thinking about that one Eric Romare movie that got a remake with Chris Rock in it. I am not making this up. He's not lying. It's a real movie. I swear to God, you pick up the DVD for this Chris Rock movie and it's like based on a movie by Eric Romer. That wasn't how it was marketed though. Well, no, but like it's in the fine print. I'm just saying it's different with Swept Away because Swept Away was like a popular movie. Swept Away was a popular-ish movie marketed through its connection to the Vett Miller film to a certain extent. Well, I have no way of knowing that because I wasn't really paying attention to movies when I was like two. I wasn't either, but I can read, Dante. I can read. I have a working sense of time. But yeah, Femme Fatale is really bizarre. People compare it to Showgirls sometimes, which I sort of get. They see a woman in a movie that I don't know 
actually think femme fatale is all that quote camp unquote there's a little bit of camp in it. there's some camp in it but it's it's a movie with some camp elements in it passion is much more camp than femme fatale is yeah passion is all the way camp it's crazy to me that passion was directed by a straight man femme fatale while great it makes sense that a straight man directed it we love you brian we love you brian come on the show i have a lot of questions for you but we've kind of gone over the plot so i think we can kind of talk about our opinions on the movie it's great it plays with everything so well it's a movie where you'll never expect what's about to happen there's a couple of times where i paused watching it i was just like what 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 the fuck and the thing with the twist is that in a sense it is incredibly obvious it's almost so obvious that it's like no they won't do that i think the twist works here because the film spends such a long time setting you up to expect basically the conclusion of vertigo yeah it's playing with your expectations of what to expect from de palma because he's made a career out of making vertigo it's building towards the stand-up on the bridge and then it goes lol no actually that's not the ending of the movie all of that is a possible vision and I think similar to the point I made about Mulholland Drive, I think it would be a mistake always to attempt to read like, what was the real reality here? And what was the... What's interesting about it in comparison to Mulholland Drive is there's sequences in Femme Fatale and the sort of imagination of the future that Laurie is just not present for. Yeah, that's another part that's kind of weird about it. Like I said in the last episode, it's like having a dream that you're not really there for. Yeah, she sort of implied to have, dare I say, the directorial vision of... Because, I mean, all the De Palma movies are basically about making movies. And, I mean, one of the main framing devices of this movie is that photo collage. And it opens with a heist of a film festival. Well, it opens, opens with her watching Double Indemnity in a hotel room. It sucks. This movie spoils both Vertigo and Double Indemnity. Everyone's seen Double Indemnity. Double Indemnity is amazing. What was really funny is when that clip played, I was kind of like, there's the sort of cheap joke to make. It's, why don't I just watch Double Indemnity? Something to that effect. But instead, you stick through this and realize that this is, in the spirit of a lot of movies made in the late 90s, early 2000s, it's a, dare I say, deconstruction of the genre. And this movie, despite being like the best movie ever, did not do very well. And I believe it was the resulting failure of this that led to De Palma never making another movie with American Studio funding ever again. Black Dahlia had studio funding. Was it American Studio funding? I swear to God, it had studio funding. I mean, I know it wasn't independent because it still feels like it's a richly De Palmian film. It was distributed by Universal. Well, then I'm wrong. There were some real studios working on this. I think Black Dahlia was the last film of his that had that sort of involvement. Yeah, because after that he made Redacted, which I know the American studios wouldn't touch making something like that with a 10-foot pole. Because it's like, yeah, we don't want to hear the Carrie guy give us shit for Iraq. We don't want no part of this shit. We don't want to reveal crimes. We as a Hollywood studio, we do not have a social conscience whatsoever. But I think Femme Fatale is a really interesting film, primarily just because it's De Palma's on all cylinders, playing with all these long-established tropes of his career. It's just so... I don't even know how to describe it. It's cerebral. It's the magic of the movies. It is really one of the most magical movies ever made. It's one of those movies that just fully embraces the power of coincidence, 
because I feel like there's a tendency in modern audiences to be really cynical of coincidences, an affliction that I like to call CinemaSins brain, where people are like nitpicking for dumb coincidences and being like, oh, that would never happen. It's like, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. Sometimes it does. Sometimes coincidences do happen. Just let art exist. Sometimes you have the worst day of your life and then drive into a Coke machine. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. It's weird. None of these films feel like so much of a departure from De Palma's signature style that diehard fans can't like them. But I guess the thing is, at that point, he just didn't have the same sort of... There weren't as many real heads around as there once were. I feel like part of that is in the popular consciousness, De Palma is the Scarface guy. Yeah, and they're like, where's Al Pacino pretending to be Hispanic? I don't want to see these women. I think De Palma has this kind of, people know him as the Carrie dressed to kill in Scarface guy. And I guess Mission Impossible. They want action. They want Michael Caine being trans. They want Al Pacino being Hispanic. Yeah, they don't want these explorations of what desire is in the first place. They don't want these deep-seated explorations of eroticism that aren't fun. The scene where she seduces the guy and then she gets Antonio Banderas to light him as she's just gleefully watching. That scene is awesome. I know I said this before. I love Antonio Banderas. He's just a gem to watch. He's a lot of fun and he's a lot of fun in this. And I love the scene where he first tries to get into Laura's hotel room and he's like, excuse me, I'm looking for my disc. That's just great. We love him. Just this slimy little dude who develops vertigo for her. It's a film about desire and time. It's, so it's like Mulholland Drive, but like a lot better. Yeah. I mean, the thing with Mulholland Drive is that May of 2023, Mulholland Drive does not need any defending from anyone. It's in the sight and sound. It's widely regarded, even by the most hardened films in the 2000s aren't good people as a masterpiece. It does not need defending. Fem Femme Fatale is a movie that needs defending. Femme Fatale is a movie that people do not like for some reason because they are wrong and they don't deserve art. To talk about Rebecca Romjan, she's really good in the film, actually. And I think it's easy to misread her performance as being bad, but it is entirely what you would want, basically. Like, it is on the surface a stock Femme Fatale performance, I guess. Hence the title. But I think she's really good at revealing the depths of the character. And I think a lot of people receive those depths as kind of ridiculous, hence her being regarded as a terrible actress in the film. But the ridiculous stuff she says is always pointed towards what the film is about, I guess. And I guess people are just uncomfortable with films being about sex. It's the same reason people were like Fifty Shades of Grey, the film is the worst movie ever made. It's a bad movie, don't get me wrong, but like, really? The worst movie? I think people feel an extra cringe factor whenever anything is about sex. Showgirls is a much more defensible example, because that's actually an interesting film. And femme fatalism? You know, Femme Fatale is also really interesting. I have to come up with more examples now. But I think it works because it's basically a film about the construction of desire in so many words. Yeah. And how that plays out and how desire leads people to construct and reconstruct fantasies. How everyone, particularly Laurie slash Lily, is constructing the world around her. She doesn't have unalloyed God's eye view control of the world, though, either. She is attempting to rearrange the chess pieces to fit the play and dynamics that she wants. And that's interesting. In that respect, it's like a film about desire coming from both ends. It's not just about the easy reading of a lot of De Palma films is, oh, this is about masculine patriarchal desire or whatever, which is true enough. But I think this film is interesting because it kind of is about both ends of the spectrum, if that makes sense. It's about how 
playing into these sort of eroticized roles gives Lori pleasure. It's basically ridiculous, but like, it's ridiculous in such a great way. And it has a Blu-ray release now, because it's on the up and up, you know? Yeah, more and more people are talking about Femme Fatale. More people are joining the Femme Fatale hive, because they know it's good, actually. I mean, I just think it's a really good movie. It's great. People should definitely give it a watch. I don't know if people like it as much as Dante and I, because Dante and I have broken brains, but, you know, it is a really good movie. And I'm glad that our boy, Roger Ebert, who we have a mixed relationship with in the pod, also recognized this fact. There was, like, a month-long period where I was like, I fucking hate Roger Ebert. I fucking hate everything he stands for. This was the same month-long period where I would wake up at, like, four in the morning every day to watch The Devils. Because, yeah, he wrote a kind of negative review of The Devils. Yeah, he was like, this is not a film. But, you know, I've lightened up on the guy. I mean, he's wrong. We're all wrong from time to time. He's a Gemini, so we can't help it. So now we move on, I guess, to Black Dahlia. A film which, unlike Femme Fatale, was not a passion project for De Palma. It was something he was brought on to. What's fascinating about The Black Dahlia is, despite it obviously being more of a studio type of thing versus Femme Fatale, in the sense that it's an adaptation of a novel. It's not purely De Palma just doing his own purely De Palma thing. I say this like he hasn't done novel adaptations that are sort of more... It was developed originally under David Fincher, and then Fincher left the project. He gone girled, so they had to give it to someone else. Yeah, Fincher left to do Zodiac, which is an interesting comparison. So Zodiac is not nearly as good as Black Dahlia, though I will say that. I think Zodiac is kind of boring. I love the procedural, and the Black Dahlia is, it gives me the same, is a sort of soapy procedural. That's why I was so into Law and Order for a bit, because I just love detective stories where they have trouble personal lives, which is essentially what the Black Dahlia is about. The actual Black Dahlia matters less than the troubled personal lives of the detectives investigating it. Basically everything in the film is fiction. There's barely any resemblance to the actual case, other than there was a woman in 1947 who was murdered named Elizabeth Short. And it kind of just takes that dynamic and then goes, okay, where do we take this? And it also fictionalizes a solution. Because, you know, the Black Dahlia is one of the most infamous unsolved murders there's so many books that are like the Black Dahlia revealed, the Black Dahlia uncovered, you know. So this instead takes a different approach, which I think is a better approach, where you basically just use the case to tell a story about It's a love story between two men. Also, I should note, originally, the Aaron Eckhart role of Lee Blanchard was gonna be Mark Wahlberg. God, that would have been so funny. Let's have Mark Wahlberg. Mark Wahlberg left the film to do the Italian job remake, which is a choice. I don't know why you'd want to work with F. Gary Gray and his remake of Italian Job over Brian De Palma, but over like infamously bad 2000s movie. But I guess people would say the same thing about Black Dahlia. And Fincher wanted a bunch of actors he couldn't get. So Fincher left the project in frustration. And who comes but our boy Brian De Palma? He swoops in to save the day. There are a couple other De Palma films like Scarface where he's kind of like shooted into the production. This was a film that people had been wanting to make since the novel came out. And it's by the same author author as a classic movie that I haven't seen, L.A. Confidential. Yeah, it's James Elroy. I'm totally unfamiliar with this guy's cinematic universe. 
Elroy has just written a lot of, I haven't read any of his novels either, has just written a lot of novels about Los Angeles, basically. That was the last episode, so don't make me think about Los Angeles too much. We are really on the Mulholland Drive territory again, but I think one notable addition that you get in the film is Mia Kirshner, who was hired basically to just have her photo be the Black Dahlia killer. But then De Palma basically added all of the screen test scenes, and those are some of the best scenes in the entire movie. Those are so good. So basically, the film is structured around a homosocial bond between Mr. Fire and Mr. Ice. Mr. Ice played by one Josh Hartnett, who I think is not particularly great in the film. He might be one of the weak links here. And then you have Aaron Eckhart, who's very good in the film, I'd say. And you have their dynamic, which is sort of mediated through the Scarlett Johansson character. And the three of them develop this bond, a bond that is originally caused through both Lee and Bucky, both being former boxers. So they organize a charity boxing thing to drum up publicity for the LAPD so they can get a raise. And then the titular murder happens half an hour into the movie when they're already establishing the sort of love triangle between these two men and Scarlett Johansson. They were already investigating another possible murder, very notably. And they get sucked into this other murder. They're originally focusing on this one guy, and then they instead get sucked into this other murder. There's this guy who Lee and Kay have a backstory with, who's getting out of prison, and Blanchard is trying to hide that from Bucky. So it's all just a bit nutty. I think that's one problem with the film, is just way too much happens in two hours. I feel like if the movie was slightly longer. Funny you should say that, because it was supposed to be three hours, and then, I don't know, some fucking fat studio dickwad. From the sounds of it, De Palma just did the editing. Why would you do that, Brian? The movie in its current form has this David Lynch's Dune vibe to it, where just so much happens, and you kind of just accept it because you're watching it. But you're also like, this was a book, right? The book probably explains this, right? Yeah. It's almost, it's not really an adaptation as it is pictures to go with the book. And sometimes that works in the case of The Shining, and sometimes it doesn't. And And I mean, this is an entertaining film in its own right. There's some great performances in it. Madeline Linscott's mother, that actress is so good and so over the top and there's the weird dad the weird Nazi dad as a matter of fact there's this like crazy rich family with some vaguely incesty shenanigans which is always fun so through a series of shenanigans Bucky finds out that the Black Dahlia went to a lesbian bar so he like goes to the lesbian bars he's just walking around through this seedy 1940s lesbian bar and that's where we get the Katie Lang cameo which is amazing I did not expect that. You have all these women just rising around her and they're all just kissing each other. And I believe one of them is an uncredited appearance by Kate Blanchett. What? I remember reading that Kate Blanchett was one of the women. That does not sound true at all. That does not sound true at all. I swear to God, I read that. I might be like totally misremembering. I googled this. This is referenced supposedly on the TV Tropes. Well, that's where I get all my information from tvtropes.com. I don't see if, is there any other actual evidence for this? I don't see any other references. But yeah, I think Black Dahlia is overstuffed and also silly and sort of ridiculous at various points. And it's not a perfect film by any stretch of the imagination, but boy does it fucking commit to the style. It is 
so visually stunning. That European guy. The Musigman. Are you thinking of who did the cinematography? Yeah, you know a movie's good when the cinematographer's name is just a bunch of fucking consonants spat out at each other. That's how you know you're about to watch a real banger. I think with the film, so you get this kind of Bucky goes down this sort of rabbit hole. He develops this relationship with this woman named Madeline Linscott, whose dad is one of the richest men in LA. And she's also ambiguously queer, I guess, which is sort of interesting. Yeah, like I said, there's an ambiguous queerness that runs through all three of these films. But also it's an ambiguous queerness that runs in both directions. There's all the lesbian stuff in it. But then in this film, there's a real undercurrent of male homosociality. Not too long after watching the Black Dahlia, I felt suddenly compelled to rewatch this TV show called Homicide Life on the Street. And it dawned on me that that's because of the homosocial cop stuff. It activated the cop Fujoshi part of my brain. There's something gay about two men being partners yeah, fire and ice, fire and ice. <laughs> when Mr. Fire dies and Mr. Ice is all pissy about it, he's like, I could have saved him, I could have saved him. I live for that shit. It's like Ace Attorney fan fiction, that sort of dynamic, and it rocks. The thing he says as Mr. Fire is put in the cremator, he just says fire and ice, fire and ice. And then everyone around him is like, what the fuck? What do you mean? More movies should just be about these sort of male relationships. So you have the discovery that Elizabeth Short was in all of these screen tests that he gets access to. So he obsessively watches all these screen tests. And I think that was the thing. That's the most pure De Palma-ism in the film is film within a film, black and white pastiche mode. The thing he does in Sisters to go way back is the fake documentary Inside Sisters. Have you seen that? And another very De Palma thing is the idea of doubles. That sort of shows up here as well because Madeline, allegedly, because these two actresses don't look all that similar if you ask me, but allegedly looks like the girl who was murdered. They're white women with the same hairstyle. That's something. Maybe De Palma just has face blindness. I don't know. But the idea is that these two women sort of look alike and there's sort of a sense that he's trying to, through this alive woman, reach this dead woman who he sort of feels like he can't save and then he can't save Mr. Fire either and he's just like he's a mess because he can't save anyone this poor fucking guy so yeah you get this kind of like conspiracy sort of unraveling where bucky's trying to figure out who killed her ultimately discovering that she was in a porn film Ugh, porn scary diploma is nowhere near as scared of porn as lost highway is yeah that's true actually this is kind of like lost highway but good so you see this lesbian themed porn film that's being made that's the scene where lee blanchard leaves in anger for seeing two women doing it, I guess. He's so mad about it. That should be me and the other guy. <laughs> He's so mad about this. As the film sort of develops, Bucky figures out where the set is through all these shenanigans, because he knows he's seen it in another film before. And you know who was involved with that film? The Lynn Scots. I love it when a movie has just a weird, fucked up European family in it. This is foreshadowing for when we talk about Visconti. This time it's Scottish, and there's a sequence where the dad character says, Oh, Hitler was a bit temperamental, but we'll regret not having fought the commies with him. Which, you know, is certainly something. You know, sometimes you just talk to old European people enough and they will just defend Hitler. 
It happens. But that dinner party scene is also just delirious, where you have the mother character, Ramona Linscott, played by Fiona Shaw, who is just... She is camp. The bit that takes place when they're all at eating dinner together is ridiculous. But then you have the ending, which is like the confession of sorts. That is just off the fucking walls. Her performance is so good in this whole thing. Basically, the entire film revolves around Bucky trying to figure out who did this murder, it destroying the life of his friend and possible gay lover, Mr. Fire. And then he steals this guy's girlfriend, which is... Their relationship, it's really funny that the Scarlett Johansson character, after after Lee dies, is like, oh yeah, we can be in love, right? And he's like, unsure about it. Because, you know, he was really in love with Lee. I also choose this girl's dead husband. Yeah. So he develops this relationship with the Hilary Swank character. They go off and do their thing. Then the Hilary Swank character later confesses that she had sex with Elizabeth Short. And he's so disgusted by this. And he's like, oh god, no. Yeah, you have all this stuff, and it basically all coalesces in the scene where he goes to the film set and then pieces together the entire case. And then he goes to the Lynn Scott household, shoots art, which is a good scene, and that's how you get the confession. And then guess what? It turns out the rich live by different rules. I hate it when the rich get away with shit because they live by different rules. And then you have the conclusion of the film where you have Bucky going back to Kay, and then he turns behind him and he sees the Black Dahlia lying in the lawn. For a movie about the Black Dahlia, it's remarkably not about the Black Dahlia at all. Any sort of true crime person that's like, oh, I know of the Black Dahlia is going to watch this movie and be like, okay, so this isn't it. It's all heavily fictionalized on purpose. I haven't read the novel and maybe I will at some point. People have made the case that James Elroy himself has made the case supposedly because James Elroy's mom was murdered in California in 1958 when he was like 10. That's got to suck. And the novel is is dedicated to her, which is, you know, certainly a dynamic. Oh, poor boy. People have obviously, you can read, and I think Elroy himself has basically encouraged a reading of it dealing with his mother's death, effectively. I'm sort of always naturally cynical about assumptions of such literal biographicalness, and I haven't even read the novel, so I don't know if I can comment on that, but it's a dynamic probably at least worth acknowledging. It's auteur theory. That's just called literary criticism. To quote that scene from Witzelman's Metropolitan, what do you call what's above the subtext? That's from Barcelona. Oh, that's Barcelona. Fuck. Who cares? Um, I don't read books. I prefer good literary criticism. That's another great, great line. All the Wood Stillman films kind of burn into my memory, you know? Well, fuck it. We're doing Stillman next. I'll do it. I'm not happy about it, but I'll do it. He blocked me on Twitter, as a matter of fact, but we won't get into that. He liked one of my tweets, so this is going to be an interesting dynamic. This is the two pulls. Anyways, The Black Dahlia. It's a good film. It's sort of, once again, about desire and men. It's kind of about women only in theory, I guess. Femme Fatale and Passion are both about women as living people. This one is more about women as a concept and what they represent to men. And that's why I think the scenes of the screen screen tests are so good. Yeah, because it's sort of a representation of women. Yeah, as he's obsessively going over all this footage of her, it's kind of like the conclusion of Blowout, you know? Yeah. I think the Mira Kirshner as Elizabeth Short in those flashbacks is really good. It's kind of, but not really, a Laura Palmer type of situation. Well, it's also like how Lynch, during the production of Twin Peaks, realized that Cheryl Lee was a really good actress, and then writes in the character of Matt 
Caddy just so she can be on the show. And also, that's a pure De Palmaism to just want in-character screen tests where the director's voice you hear is Brian De Palma. Classic Brian De Palma. It's like the conclusion of Slow Out where the John Travolta character is obsessively going over the audio recordings he has of the now-dead Nancy Allen character. There's a similar kind of dynamic of these eerie, haunting memories that are represented through these limited technological mediums, I guess. Am I allowed to say hauntology? You can say hauntology. Or is that like a slur? Hauntology is a slur. Am I allowed to say the H word? At least I haven't gotten into the B word yet. Which B word? The B word that doesn't really apply here at all, Brechtian. This is not a very Brechtian film. Are you gonna fucking tell me that passion is Brechtian? Um, I wasn't going to, but you put the idea in my head. <laughs> it's not a Brechtian film. I will say it's not. It's totally not. It's a lesbian film. So Black Dahlia, why do people hate this movie? I don't get it. Uh, I feel like it just doesn't live up to expectations. The thing is, it looks like it's got that pure visual flourish that you come to expect from De Palma. Every time there's a split diopter shot, I'm just like grinning. Yes, Antonio Banderas assassins.gif. The best split diopter I think in all these is the split diopter where it's the same shot, like that one bit in Femme Fatale, where it's just Banderas at slightly different angles as it's being zoomed out. I'm just like, yeah, we're doing this. The cinematography looks gorgeous. It does have have a little bit of, I know this is before Netflix, a little bit of the Netflix original series sheen to it. I'm like slipping into dangerous territory here, but based on the novel and how dense I would imagine it is, based on the fact that a two-hour movie doesn't really do it justice, it maybe would have worked better as a mini-series. That's what Fincher wanted originally. Of fucking course he would have. But I'm glad it's a film, because I wouldn't watch it if it were a miniseries. Well, no, just because I don't really watch miniseries. I only watch seven season long cop procedurals. I'm like a character in a 90s TV show who tells you that I don't watch television, with a couple exceptions. No, I just watch the same few seasons of news radio and homicide life on the street over and over again. I feel it. I just watch Seinfeld constantly. That's like my one comfort thing. But I don't get, why do people not like this movie? I don't know how I can hate a movie that has an extended Katie Lang cameo. Well, that's because you're a lesbian and most people aren't. That's true. You know that Homer Simpson bit where he's like, this lesbian bar doesn't have a fire exit? That's what it must have been like for De Palma making these movies. Except it was like, this lesbian in part doesn't have a split diopter shot. I'm sure a lot of people could be like, oh, Black Dahlia is so male gazy. I don't know. What fucking man thinks Katie Lang is hot? No offense to Katie Lang. But like, that feels more like a little tip of the hat to the lesbian community than anything else. The 2000s really served the lesbian community well with weird erotic thrillers. Most notably, of course, Bound. But I'm not making any implications about De Palma's gender through that. Don't quote me on that. There is that video of Brian De Palma, the director of Passion, describing Passion as a movie for women, with women, by women. He's the one who fucking made the movie, so read into that what you will. Which transition have saved her. I'm sorry, Brian. I, if you come on the pod, I'll, I'll take that back. I think if the movie was made 15 years earlier, it probably would have been one of the greatest films ever made. It would have been referenced on Seinfeld. It would have been huge. I feel like it came out at a really weird time. It looked digital a little bit in a way that I don't think people particularly care for, which is, I guess, part of the problem. But I 
also just think the main problem is structural, and I think one of the other problems might actually be the Josh Hartnett performance. I have no ill will towards Josh Hartnett by any stretch of the imagination, but I don't think he sells it the same way that Eckhart kind of knows what sort of movie he's in here. I think Scarlett Johansson, and people clown on the Hilary Swank performance, but I think it's also fine. Yeah, I mean, I have weird feelings about Hilary Swank. What do you mean by that? I'm transmasculine. That's what I mean by that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She was in Boys Don't Cry. I always forget that. I wish we had a fucking Brian De Palma. When are trans men going to get a dress to kill? Actually, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Trans men dress to kill. You also get another Brian De Palma casting Mira Gershner, star of the L word. He was weirdly tapped into lesbian culture. Katie Lang. Did he have a lesbian daughter or something? That literally feels like the best explanation. He has a lesbian daughter or sister or something and that's how he knows so much about them. I would believe that. Because there's laying up women-women relationships for titillation and then there's just having Katie Lang show up. That's not like a sex getting off to lesbians thing. That's just like a shout out to you guys. A shout out to the lesbian community and the lesbian community shouts out Brian De Palma. This is a good movie and I don't get why people are like convinced it's really bad. I can tolerate people being like this isn't good or isn't a great film but is it bad? It's not my favorite De Palma and I would probably say of these three films it's the weakest but then I'm a huge fan of Femme Fatale and I'm just so morbidly fascinated by passion. You know I will say this is the second best. I will say this is the second best. I think passion is weaker than this. Well I think passion is just too fascinating for me to say anything bad about. Passion is just fucking wild. Speak of the devil in terms of Netflix original series ass digital grain. Passion was shot on 35. What the fuck are you talking about? It looks digital though. That's the thing. It looks like World on a Wire. It does not look it looks a bit like World on a Wire. This is our Siskel and Ebert. Is it just the angles are so cool that I don't notice how ugly it is? Did I just watch a different torrent of it than you or something? I think we watched the same torrent of it. I don't know. It looks kind of digital. It works because it's literally a movie about technology. Are you doing like the Twin Peaks the return defense I'm doing the fucking Miami Vice defense and I don't even fucking like Miami Vice I've never seen Miami Vice either the 80s television show or the film oh the show is so cool I've seen clips from it I watched a CNN the 80s documentary series as a child don't make fun of me and then I remember there was an episode I watched as a child that was about television in the 80s they showed all these clips from Miami Vice and I was like this seems like a really cool show I never watched it I've seen a couple of episodes and it's so cool. We probably could do a Michael Mann 2000s episode. The problem is I don't like Michael Mann nearly as much as I like I'm not a man hater. I want to make this clear. I'm boring when it comes to Michael Mann. I'm like, yeah, Manhunter is awesome. Thief is pretty cool. I love Heat, actually, though. What I love about Manhunter is the extended use of the drum solo from Inagata Devita. Because I remember when that song comes on, you're like, okay, they're going to play like the first three minutes of it, because that was the single edit of the song. Yeah, movies don't play whole eight-minute songs anymore and that's for the worst. It's a 20-minute song, so they don't play all of it. That would be a level of cool that not even Michael Mann seems to be on, or if you just play all of it, you got a defeated. So, yeah, Black Dahlia, good film. I enjoyed it. I don't grasp a lot of the criticisms of it for the most part, other than it's maybe a little too 2000s-looking. And also the complaints that it's not as good as other film noirs is like, I 
S. This is a genre of rich with good films. So like, I get yeah, but this is an interesting film, and I think it does a lot of things that the original 40s wave of film noirs couldn't do. There is no lesbian bar scene in fucking The Maltese Falcon. Damn, I was gonna go see that, but now I'm not so sure. I don't even like The Maltese Falcon noirs. Well, maybe the lack of a lesbian. <laughs> it's kind of funny. I kind of could tell that this movie was gonna be about porn to a certain extent, like with Black Dahlia, because that's the exact plot point in The Big Sleep, which is a novel that I have mixed feelings about, but, and very famously was the source of all of the censorship in The Big Sleep, in the film version, where they couldn't really include any actual references to pornography in it, but the conspiracy depicted in the novel is about a porn ring, so it makes the film borderline incoherent, but then De Palma, with the luxury of living in the 21st century, can just be like, no, we're gonna show some of that lesbian porn. Oh, yes. That's why I don't think he hates porn. You can tell he wanted to do that, right? Well, he made Body Double. That scene in Body Double with the Frankie Goes to Hollywood song. I was just gonna say, I love the part in Body Double where the guy just fucking walks into a Frankie Goes to Hollywood music video. Body Double is such a strange film. It's so ridiculous. As opposed to all those other super normal Brian De Palma movies. Yeah, there isn't a normal Brian De Palma. After The Black Dahlia, De Palma released Redacted, which is a film about the Iraq War, and- uh, We did not watch Redacted. Well, I watched it quite a while ago, and I think it's quite good. I have not seen it. We're not leading into Redacted. We're redacting it from the episode, you could say. At some point, we could revisit this and do De Palma 2000s Part 2 and talk about Mission to Mars, Redacted, and Domino. I'm not getting enough money from this show to talk about Domino at the moment okay okay that's defensible but passion what a picture i think there's a bit of a split i think it's okay i fucking love passion and the more i think about it the more i think this could be one of de palma's masterpieces you have seen it twice if we can get into that over the course of a couple of days which is kind of funny it's so good i'm just fascinated by it and to me it is so quintessentially De Palma that I can't imagine being a De Palma fan and detesting it the way that so many people do. I can get not liking it as much as some other De Palmas. Yeah, I'd say I'm not liking it as much as other De Palmas can, probably. But if you hate it, then like, are you even a Brian De Palma fan? Because this is so quintessentially a Brian De Palma film, and it's pretty impressive that 40 plus years into his career, he's able to consistently churn out bangers. Yeah, this is a really interesting movie. I am kind of miffed by all of the 2000s De Palma movies their reception. This one in particular, it seems like people think like this is a fucking terrible movie. I don't think it's bad. I mean, I really, really love it. It's really, really, really good. And it's just such a fascinating film. There's so much going on in it. I think we should probably explain it a little bit for many listeners who probably have not seen it. The best comparison point is, I think, The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant. And like, of course you would say that Dante, but... It is kind of riffing in that territory, but it's about the dynamics of erotic domination in the business world, effectively, between Christine, played by Rachel McAdams, and Isabel, played by Nomi Rapace, and Danny, played by Caroline Rolforth. And it's basically about the Rachel McAdams character, who's this advertising executive, who's trying to like, basically get her way with everything 
everyone and kind of dominate and control everything. And this plot of intrigue and psychological manipulation that she does to the Nomi Rapace character. That's kind of the simplest explanation I can come up with. And then it goes into a bunch of different places. In classic Brian De Palma fashion, it's left ambiguous what is and isn't real. Yeah, and one thing I actually really like about the movie is the way it sort of plays with the tropes surrounding dream imagery in films. There are a bunch of sequences in the film where someone wakes up from something and goes, oh, that was just a dream, and then they realize it wasn't just a dream. Like the part where she wakes up in the prison and it's set up as she's waking up from a dream. And then she sees her sleeping in her apartment. She's like, oh, and she can peacefully go to sleep. And then she realizes that she's still in the prison. Or even just the ending. It's a film that, in so many words, plays with what you'd expect from a genre film. If someone wakes up from a dream, you go, okay, yeah, that whole sequence was just bullshit, right? Or whatever. You go, okay, yeah, now we figured it out. That doesn't matter. And then De Palma kind of plays with that default expectation that the dreams don't matter. Sorry, you were going to say about the ending. I was just going to say, like, it's fucking wild. If there's one way to describe this film by Brian De Palma, it's just that it is fucking wild. So yeah, you kind of get the whole back and forth attempts at domination in the film. It's basically Isabel and Danny create this commercial. And the commercial is itself a commercial about voyeurism, funnily enough. It's a commercial for smartphones. And of course, De Palma would fucking love smartphones. It's like, we've got a little voyeurism machine the size of our palm in our pockets at all times. It just feels so right. And the commercial is very sexually charged, one could say, that she makes. But then what happens is Christine takes all the credit for it. Because she's basically her mean girl character in this film, Rachel McAdams. Yeah, I actually watched an interview with De Palma and the interviewer was like, so what movie inspired you to cast Rachel McAdams in it? Was there a particular performance of hers? And De Palma was just like, Mean Girls. This is very funny. It definitely makes sense. It's almost like a stealth sequel to Mean Girls. It's like Mean Girls, but they're adults. They're adults. There's all these sort of dynamics of eroticism. There's also the fourth main character of the film is Dirk, who is this man that Christian has sex with. Boyfriend, it's kind of unclear. But then Isabel also starts having sex with him, and then he reveals the inner world of Christine to her. I think I think what's really interesting about the ending of the film is that it kind of just like all these other films it does play with doubles because early in the film Christine says that she had a twin sister who died but then at Christine's funeral because she's mysteriously murdered because it's a Brian De Palma film uh, someone's gonna get mysteriously murdered a woman played by Rachel McAdams shows up and it's sort of ambiguous is this her sister? Yeah. She's wearing the same shoes that were kind of a point of intrigue earlier in the movie when they went to a fashion show. I think like the sort of high set piece of the film is the ballet sequence where it's split screen. That is so cool. The split diopter ballet slash murder scene. That is probably the best scene in the whole movie. The best scene in the whole movie. I think it's a movie that is kind of slow. It's a shockingly slow movie for a 90 minute long movie. I 
don't think it's all that slow. I think the Black Dahlia somehow manages to be slower. And this is a movie that they cut an hour from. Well, this is just... It takes a little bit longer than you'd expect to get to the murder intrigue, I'd say. I think the question is, how invested are you in the psychological... Yeah, I guess that stuff is all interesting, so... But, like, it doesn't go completely batshit until the last bit, though. It's until after... One could say that the Christine role in the film is the Janet Lee role in Psycho. She's killed at the midway point because you go, oh, they aren't going to kill her at the midway point. She's one of the main characters, you know? And then they do. Yeah, and then they do kill her and you're like, oh. And then the movie has to take a radical turn in terms of perspective as a result. Not as much as Psycho. Psycho's, you know, all shot from the perspective at the beginning of Janet Lee. So with this film, something kind of similar happens where there's this core dynamic throughout the first bit of the film of Isabel and Christine's all the scenes where Christine is dragging Isabel to things and is trying to like seduce her it's not just a matter of seduction though it's a matter of domination yeah it's like they're constantly trying to one-up each other in terms of who can manipulate who the most and they both at various points in the film say, you know, it's just business. There's no backstabbing in business. I mean, really, it's basically the Depeche Mode master and servant thesis where like capitalism is a lot like S&M, but like less sexy. I'd say it's pretty sexy in this movie. Well, the capitalism, I mean, not so much the S&M. Yeah, yeah. I think one thing that's really interesting about the film is the first half is basically Petra von Konting it up, one could say. You fucking thought Tar was... Was the bitter tears of Petra von Kant, but for like iPhones and cancel culture. How about fucking Passion, directed by Brian De Palma? Do you want to pitch write a spec script on Tay? It's like a sequel to Passion, but it's actually about cancel culture. I feel like had Passion been made ten years later, it would be about cancel culture. You do a sequel that takes place ten years after, like a long gap sequel. This is like the last pre-cancer culture film. This was a very interesting time because you did. Have have filmmakers examining the impacts of technology on society but this was also before like social media poisoning had extended beyond like facebook bullying cancel culture wasn't a thing well basically the core kind of difference all the internet and all the technology smartphones were a relatively new technology it might be difficult to forget that the novelty of them advertising a new smartphone because that was like late 2000s early 2010s the first iphone comes out in like 2008 question mark it was 2007 this is a very sort of interesting period in the history of technology i guess in 2012 twitter existed and stuff like that but they were by no means twitter existed but it wasn't this huge cultural force yeah that's probably one way of putting it the smartphone was still this very new and kind of luxurious feeling technology and not something that everyone and their mom owns yeah there was a certain novelty to it and this was also also in the era of, I guess, I don't know how you would describe it, but like more cyberbullying as opposed to cancel culture, which I feel like a lot of people, there's a lot of overlap between that. There is overlap. The McAdams character in this feels much more like mean girls, obviously than anything else. And yeah, the film kind of devolves after she dies into this very complicated murder mystery plot where basically Isabel, the character we've kind of been following and who has been like controlled by Christine is thought to be the murderer of Christine because Christine dies
dies in that sequence with the mask on. She is murdered by someone wearing the mask that also looks like her, that looks like Christine. It basically becomes a giallo three quarters of the way into the film. Yeah, everything gets kind of nutty. All the camera angles and the lighting changes very dramatically. The cinematography is so good. It looks like World on a Wire, like just the bright blue. What's funny is it doesn't look like that until things take a darker turn. I mean, it was always dark, obviously, but like it's not until the midpoint that you get the harsh blues. Yeah, the harsh blues kind of come out of nowhere and it really does throw you for one at the beginning. You have the shots of closed blinds where everything's dark and just light eking its way through it. And it's before Christine gets murdered that I'd say that happens, though. But it's towards the end. And then it kind of reaches its hophiosis in the last sequence of the film where you have the vertigo stairs basically as you have all these race against the clock of the police officer running down and the fight that breaks out because i think we can say the twist at this point right it's what this show does because we're led to believe that isabel is innocent and then it's revealed that she actually did kill christine and that she framed dirk i mean it's kind of left ambiguous am i giving the film more credit than it deserves for being like lynchian or whatever i know but i think we're led she's arrested and we're led to believe that she's guilty and then she's ultimately not implicated they find what they think is definitive proof that it couldn't have been her but then what happens is danny who helped get isabel free reveals to isabel that she knows that actually she did it and that she has video evidence that isabel did everything because she had been following her yeah and she says to isabel that she'll not turn her in if she falls in love with her danny who's basically the erm herman petra von kant at that point yes and then you have their relationship because obviously Danny's in love with her and Isabel isn't reciprocating it. So basically Danny holds over the fact that she has all this evidence that she's going to show the cops that will prove that actually Isabel was the one who did everything and that she carefully orchestrated everything so she'd have an alibi at the ballet. She bought a second version of the same scarf and then hid it in a particular spot. She faked taking sleeping pills that were actually fine. It is really really just the bitter tears of Petra von Kahn. Yeah, it's a really interesting movie. Basically, the twist is at Christine's funeral. You see this woman that looks a lot like Christine and is wearing the shoes that Christine pointed out earlier in the film. Basically, Danny and Isabel are like, wait, is that Christine? Or is that her sister? Was the sister a lie or not? Yeah, we're kind of set up to believe that Christine is this total bitch and that her murder was justified. We're kind of naturally on Isabel's side and then that side kind of cracks quite a bit throughout the second half of the movie because we have her and then we have Christine's question mark twin sister try to kill Isabel and then Isabel wakes up thinking everything was a nightmare and then she finds and then Danny is still dead that's sort of a repetition of the same idea earlier in the film the bit in the prison what you get is like oh it was just a dream but actually it wasn't just a dream he never gives you the cheap it was just a dream as a way to stop caring or even the murder she wakes up and goes phew it's a dream and then it's not it really plays with reality in a really interesting way it's almost like an escalation of femme fatale because in femme fatale you only really have that sort of twist happen once while it happens something like five times in passion the sort of repeated waking up from a dream you can't believe anything and that's why it's such a good film and i think there's elements of it that i really 
really, really like. And I like the kind of Hitchcockness of it. I like, maybe I do have to rewatch it. I do have to wonder how well it would play on the rewatch. I feel like the last bit would probably. I liked it more because like, it's just like really strong. It's a very inspired movie. It's a movie that I don't think you'll ever be bored watching, even if you don't go along with every choice made in the film. But yeah, there's something that leaves me a bit cold in it, and I can't really fully explain that. I mean, there is this sort of, despite being shot on 35, there is a sort of digital sheen to it. Yeah, which I don't know if I'd like that. I think it looks pretty cool. And I know you could be like, oh, well, that's the ugliness is to mirror the ugliness of the society that produced or whatever you No, no, I just think it's a cool look. I think particularly once you get over the hump, the way it's shot towards the ending is more interesting. It's beautiful. There's just a lot to recommend about it, but also there's a lot that I think is kind of, I'm unsure of the more I think about it, but also it's fun. Most De Palma movies are a good time, even if they're kind of bad. De Palma, I think if I were to sort of summarize him as a director, I would say that his films are never boring. They're at most questionable. And just the fact that he's been allowed for so long to do his own thing is pretty fascinating. He's a very talented filmmaker, but also I think it would be easy to like write him off as less than the sum of his parts or like just doing Hitchcock pastiches or just doing whatever, just doing kind of not adding much that's original. But then I think you actually, if you like think very carefully about his films and you watch a bunch of them, you realize that you can't just write them off as, oh, this is just like him channeling Hitchcock or whatever. Clearly there's a lot of Hitchcock, there's a lot of Godard in De Palma's stuff but he's always bringing his own particular spin to it that's how i would get at the dynamic of de palma as a filmmaker as a whole is his he has all these influences he has all these obvious precursors and then he kind of like with the hitchcock stuff with the expressionism of his style he kind of takes everything to 11 all the time and you get these beautifully batch montage edits that are just so beautiful and so bizarre and so expressive in a way that almost nothing else is and i think that's what i like about him is that he's so unique He's so of his own style and all his movies, they're just so brilliantly edited. They're so brilliantly shot. You can tell that so much work and so much love has gone into every frame. But it feels hard to, even if there's one that you don't like as much, you go, oh, but there's all this stuff in it that he's clearly doing that are really good or whatever, you know? Good filmmaker. Brian De Palma, good filmmaker. I think that's the conclusion we've reached. Do you have any concluding thoughts on Mr. De Palma? I really don't.